Welcome to the Grant Writing and Funding Podcast, where it's all about, you guessed it, grant writing and funding made easy so you can increase capacity, grow funding, and advance your nonprofit or freelance mission. Now, let's hand it over to your host, grants expert and author Holly Rustic, so you can increase your funding and drive impact. Hello, hello, hello. It's Holly Rustic here with Grant Writing and Funding, and I'm here to help you grow capacity, increase funding, and to advance mission. Now, that might be the mission of the nonprofit where you're working at, or if you're working with many nonprofits as a freelance grant writer, nonprofit consultant, all of the missions that they advance. All right, so we have a great episode, as always, for you today. We have a guest on the show, Miss Sarah Olivieri, and she is not a stranger to the Grant Writing and Funding podcast. In fact, she has been on a before, but it's been a long time. So I definitely wanted to have Sarah back on the show. She is definitely a nonprofit business strategist and number one international best-selling author and former executive director. So she has so much to offer you. And you are going to absolutely love this podcast episode because she gets a little nerdy. Yes, she does. She actually went to the University of Chicago and where she says it's the place where fun goes to die (laughs) because of all the research. But actually her research was quite fun today. But one of the things that she really pulls from her research, which you are definitely going to want to tune into as a nonprofit leader, is she pulls in 300 years of research about boards of nonprofits. So this is really important because the best practices that we have today, she actually argues are not the best practices, but they were just kind of developed because of actually a legal suit at Harvard in the 1600s. So very interesting that now we've just relied on those as the best practices. But then she goes into, and we both share, some of the major weaknesses that we see on boards are actually because of these some of these best practices. And it was really eye-opening for me because I've, I've never done that research. So it was great for her to come on the show and share some of that research and then share why this is a conflict with those best practices. And then she also shares, she doesn't leave you hanging, you guys. She also then shares what some of the best practices should be for your board of directors and that she has been able to implement and help other nonprofits implement and actually see efficiency on boards. And I know that is one of the major challenges uh, for nonprofit leaders and board directors is having a struggle with knowing how to implement, how to get funding, who are the right people, what are the roles, all of that so your nonprofit can actually do its job, right? And it was really interesting that maybe it's because of these 10 quote unquote best practices that maybe are not the best and have proven not to be the best. Um, So definitely tune in today, that sounds interesting to you. And real quick, a word from our sponsor, Grant Writing and Funding. If you are looking for a grants formula, a quick video series on how to write grants, which is completely free, Or maybe you're wanting the top 10 tips to position your nonprofit for funding, an awesome downloadable that we have created for you, once again, for free. Or maybe you're thinking about becoming a freelance grant writer and you wanna know the first five steps to take to becoming a freelance grant writer, a workbook, 
also free, then be sure to join our free grant writing and funding hub haven. We are also on our newsletter so you get information about the podcast and all the things going on and other information that we curate and resources we curate on the nonprofit space. You get that every single week. If that sounds like something you're interested in, jump over to grantwritingandfunding.com to sign up for our free hub haven. And being that Sarah is on the show this week, she is also providing all of you listeners a wonderful live webinar on board training. And that happens January 17th at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard. And this is how high-performing nonprofits can organize their boards to maximize impact with five simple steps. So if that sounds interesting to you, and especially what you hear about today, what her research has shown, she has now created a formula with what the actual best practices should be. So if you want to take your board from overworked to highly engaged while doing less and accomplishing more, then be sure to join both Sarah and I at this live webinar on January 17th at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard. The cost is $27, but you are going to get a ton of information and she has some bonus checklist for you. So do jump over to grantwritingandfunding.com forward slash 253 for more information and for all of the show notes for today and how to contact Sarah and all of the things. That's our show note link today. Once again, grantwritingandfunding.com forward slash 253. Okay, so before we kick off today, I just want to share a little bit more about Sarah. As I mentioned, she's a nonprofit business strategist, internationally best-selling author, and former executive director. She is also a frequent presenter at conferences and online trainings and is the creator of the Impact Method, which is a framework that helps nonprofits simplify their operations, build aligned teams, and make a bigger impact without getting overwhelmed or burning out. And she actually came on the podcast before to talk about the impact method. So I'm going to put that link in the show notes at grantwritingandfunding.com forward slash 253. So if you also want to check out that podcast where she goes over the impact method in more depth, do check it out because it's pretty darn cool. Sarah's also received her bachelor's from the University of Chicago, which she mentions today, uh, with a focus on globalization and its effect on marginalized cultures. And she also holds a master's degree in humanistic and multicultural education. She has over 15 years of nonprofit leadership experience and has been the co-founder of many nonprofits. All right, without further ado, here's Sarah. Hello, hello, hello. It's Holly Rustic here with Grant Writing and Funding. I am super excited to help you grow capacity, increase funding, and to advance the mission of the nonprofit you're working at or if you're a consultant, the many different nonprofits you work with. And to help us get there this week, we have an amazing returning guest. She hasn't been on in a long time, so I'm super excited. Um, that is Miss Sarah, Sarah Olivieri of Pivot Ground. So welcome. Hi, Holly. It's so good to be here. <laughs> yes, it's so great to have you on. I was just saying before we started, I'm like, I love interviewing you because you always have so many golden nuggets and you're just so on point for things that nonprofits are really dealing with. And what I learned is why you're always so on point is because you've done so much research into 300 years of nonprofit organizations. I was like, oh, well, no wonder you're like, oh, here we go. Here's some struggles. Here's ways to overcome it. Here's some things I've developed, et cetera. So I love it. So welcome again to the show. I can't wait to get started today yeah. on what we're going to be talking about with nonprofits. Yeah. 
Thank you. Yeah, you may have just revealed to everybody that I am secretly a total nerd. I went to the University of Chicago, whose slogan is where fun comes to die, because we just love, love learning so much. So when I'm like, hmm, let me understand a little more about boards, I go like reading books and doing all this crazy research. And I do that with like every problem that I come across. And yes, that's how I get to be good. Lots of research and then lots of practice and experiments with all my clients so that I get to see, you know, what really works firsthand and run some testing as well, like a good kind of data-driven research nerd. <laughs> I love it. I love it. We're fun comes to die. <laughs> You're like data. I don't know. I, I was on a board with somebody and she's, a, she's an amazing person. She's a lawyer and we were doing our values and she's like, data, data needs to be a part of our values. Like, you know. Is that a value? She's like, yes, it is. <laughs> so, it is. Um, it's like, is it NASA who has like trust but verify? Or some, yeah. somebody that's like somebody's famous kind of guiding principle, trust but verify. And that's how yeah. I feel. And I resonate with that. I'm sure all the grant writers out there are resonating with that too, because that's what we need to do in our grants as well. Those stats and reports Absolutely. and information, right? So awesome. So you have a training coming up January 17th and I'm hosting it. So I'm really excited. Um, that's at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard, and that is how high-performing nonprofits can organize their boards to maximize impact with five simple steps. So we definitely have the link in the show notes if you guys are interested in joining, and we're going to kind of touch on why you develop that training and some of what our people can get out of that as well. You're going to give away, obviously, uh, a roadmap today as well that people can implement right away. Um but before we get there, I, I want to talk about that research. I'm really interested now because you're like 300 years of research. And I'm, I am a co-research nerd along with you. <laughs> so I totally love that. But I just want to know, like, what did you find in that research? And then also, how does that apply? Like, how, how does that actually help nonprofits kind of formulate, you know, decision making and all of that based on this research that you did? So I know sometimes we can just dig into the research, but how does it actually apply? Because I know you're good on executing as well. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, the research was fascinating and I did not expect to go back 300 years, but what it went back to was the very first corporations in the, in I'll say the Americas, right? This is pre-formation of the United States. Wow. <laughs> and um, it was kind of interesting actually. So you have the first nonprofits are some of the first corporations because back in the day, um, and I'm not going to, you know, Dan Pallotta, who has this great TED talk, talks a lot about like what the Puritans were doing. But what he doesn't talk about in his talk that I thought was really interesting was so back then <laughs> um, in the 1600s, all of the organizations who we would call nonprofits today or charities today were basically either owned by the government mm -hmm. and the, but because the government also owned the church, they were owned mm -hmm. by the church or the government and the church and government, which were kind of the same thing, kind of took responsibility for businesses or organizations that had were designed for the good of the people as opposed to being designed for making money. 
Mm-hmm. So when the Puritans came over to what becomes the United States mm-hmm. and they start to want to form institutions that are for the good of the people, they don't want to make them government entities because then they will be church entities. And you know, if you know your history at all, you know that the Puritans, just in case you don't know your history, the Puritans wanted different religion right. than what the Church of England had. Mm-hmm. And so they formed corporations. <clears throat> and one of the, what I would call the first nonprofit actually is, you all know it, it's Harvard University. Ah. The Puritans wanted to create a university to um, develop their leaders who were of their faith as opposed to what then we have Yale, right? But Yale was the Church of England's basic you know, people. So, um, so there we have this first one and Harvard is created in um, 16, if there's Harvard people, you're, I'm sure you know the date, it's like 1635 or something, but that's not so important. So mm-hmm. interestingly, what happens is we go all the way back to the beginning and within a few years, there's this legal battle that's going to sound so familiar, but I'll just pause there for a second. Are you with me before I tell you? Yeah, I'm with you. Yeah, I'm I'm following the story. It's interesting. Yeah. So Harvard's initial kind of governance setup is there's like a president of the university and then there is a board, but the board is all Harvard professors. Mm-hmm. And so basically you have a very informed working at the organization group who is supervising and deciding on the direction and kind of how things are going to be done. But then, and maybe you don't know about this, a lot of people don't know about this, but the Puritans loved business. And so there were lots of newly wealthy Puritans in England and in what becomes the United States. And there's, I think, I don't think he might be the second president of Harvard. It doesn't really matter the order, but very, very early on, this president wants to raise more money for the school. So what does he think? Well, if I can give very wealthy Puritan donors kind of some privilege by letting them sit on a board, then they'll give more money. And Mm -hmm. so he tries to create this board of directors that's full of wealthy Puritans or just wealthy donors, right? That's the point here. The other board of professor advisors says, no, 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 no. (laughs) Don't give away all the power to the donors. And a legal battle ensues, right? Because like we're talking like Harvard law professors, like boom, they're They're on I know how to use a court system. (laughs) That's right. And it's like the new court system and it's like the wild, you know, the wild west, like the wild new frontier, except it's, you know, it's New England because we're still in the 1600s here, people, right? Like Plymouth Rock era. We haven't even formed the United States yet. Mm -hmm. So the battle is so intense that the courts couldn't come up with a ruling. And they finally just turned it back to Harvard saying, you guys have to figure this out because we can't decide. So right there, like right back in the 1600s, there is this conflict between the kind of leaders who have a good sense of what's best for the organization and another group of leaders who are powerful donors who kind of want to contain kind of a certain amount, they want to have control over their money and they're duking it out legally so much so that the courts won't even decide. 
And then we zoom through history. I'm not going to take you through all 300 years of history. That would be boring. <laughs> but <clears throat> there was a legal decision that came out at one point that said, once a donor gives their money to a nonprofit, mm -hmm. they don't own their money anymore. They don't have any control uh, over it, right? Right. And from right. that point, this whole positioning of what what's a board's responsibility and what can they do or what should they do mm -hmm. continues this battle of the donors trying to have control over their money wow. and that is that same mm -hmm. dialogue that same that persevered through the 90s and into the early 2000s and that current list that is still being used widely of the 10 responsibilities of a board, which include things like ensure there are adequate financial resources and set the strategic, um, the strategy and the vision of the organization. All of those things come from wealthy, powerful donors trying to maintain control over their money after they've given it to the nonprofit. Wow. That's so interesting. Yeah. All from Harvard. So no, I can tell totally from heart. why, you know, some courts had to settle out to say, hey, this is going to be crazy and it's going to keep going back and forth and back and forth. We need to come up with something like once you give, that's it. But then they're like, hey, let's maintain some control still. So, wow. Yeah. So that still plays out today, right? Like you said. Plays out today. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we were talking about, you know, data, right? Yeah. So I went looking for the data. So I'm like, I, I was like, where is the research on whether or not this particular widely used list of 10 responsibilities of a board, whether or not it's a good list? Like, right. where's the data? Where's the research that says whether or not this is effective? Because we have a ton of anecdotal evidence that it's not effective. Yeah. <laughs> there are many, you know, many, many stories of it being, and we can tell some horror stories if we want. Mm -hmm. um, I love for people, I love it when people send me their board horror stories or any like horror stories related to running nonprofits. Mm -hmm. um, but basically I didn't find any research. Right. All I found was research relating to whether or not people were doing those 10 things. But that's very different from research that says whether or not those 10 things are good. Now right. I have to, you know, nerd in me wants to qualify. How do I find define good? <laughs> I always define good for nonprofits is it helps you make a bigger impact. Right. If it helps you do your mission better, serve more people, right? That's my measurement of good is whether or not it's effective for making an impact. And I could not find any of that research. So we call it best practices. Yep. But yep. what I'm telling you is these are old, really old practices. So old that we just assume they may not they were be best. best. Yeah. I, and they're I love not. that because, you know, we just kind of get caught in here's a list. This is what you have to do. And then people teach on how to, this is how you do it. And then you're like, wait a second, is this even working? Why are we following yeah. something that is clearly what from my research that I'm finding? <laughs> my case studies is not working. So I love that. And, and to think about, do we need to follow that still, right? Who is really saying these are the best practices, right? It's just kind of, where is that driven from? So are you advocating to change any of those best practices, the quote unquote best practices and to relaunch and say, these are really the best practices? 
So absolutely. And that's what we're going to talk about on the 17th. Um, what I have created as kind of a new set of best practices. Mm -hmm. And um, of course, these are cross referenced with what's legal because most of those best practices are not at all required by law, right? So just to be clear, right? We're not yeah. talking yeah. about changing what the law is, right? There's a ton of best practices that are just guidelines, but the people made up, you know, and I just told you where they made them up from. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so we're going to talk about, so what I have created that I'm going to do this training on are the five things that the board should be doing. Okay. Mm -hmm. And like everything I do with nonprofits, the whole idea is let's make it easier. Yeah. Let's make it more fun and more effective. Because I totally believe that things that are more effective and things that are more joyful and easier usually are all like synergistic. It's usually not a trade-off between yeah. easier and better. Um, and I'm always surprised that the nonprofit sector seems to struggle with abundance mindset yeah. like this more than the for-profit sector. Oh, totally. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's really interesting too. So I, I okay, so I know you're going to be discussing what those top five are, so people can definitely join for that. But can you talk about what five aren't necessarily good practices? Because you basically have a list of 10. Maybe you're keeping five, yeah. maybe you're not. I don't know. Maybe you're doing away with all of them. So can you at least tell us like from that list of the traditional 10, what might not be working very well? What might not be actually quote unquote best practices? Yeah. So one of them that I hear a lot, it's really pervasive, is ensuring that the organization has adequate financial resources. Mm -hmm. And I'm, you know, I'm not looking at the description right now, but that's almost a verbatim quote. Mm -hmm. And this is problematic for a number of reasons. So one of the reasons is, first of all, that's literally a job description of a fundraising department or development department, mm -hmm. which by the way, is a professional job, right? Like mm -hmm. Holly, like you train people in this. It's not mm -hmm. like it is something you have to learn, yep. practice, yep. study up on. It's not like you're just born knowing how to fundraise. Um, you can get certifications in it, right? Like this mm -hmm. is a profession. And it's a lot of work, right? It's at least a full-time job. Even for a very small nonprofit, it's almost a full-time job. And for larger nonprofits, right, it's a full department. Yeah. So considering that most nonprofit board members are part-time volunteers, mm -hmm. does it, it just doesn't make sense to tell them that they're responsible for running an entire department mm -hmm. of a nonprofit, mm -hmm. right? We're mm -hmm. not going to pay you. You're not full-time. And by the way, if you were a nonprofit fundraising professional, you'd probably have a job getting paid to do that. And if you do, you now have a conflict of interest as a board member. So you shouldn't be on the board anyway. Right. <laughs> right. right. So yeah. That's the first problem with that. The second yeah. problem with that has to do with diversity, equity, and inclusion, mm -hmm. or as I like to call it, um, anti bias. I want to be anti-biased, anti-discriminatory. Mm -hmm. um, and I like to take those terms from, there's some great work on anti-racism, right? And so as much as we love to be positive, talking about being against something actually often creates a lot of aha moments about what we need to do to not have it. Mm -hmm. So when we're told that boards are 
responsible for ensuring that they're adequate financial resources, this starts to lead to the very common advice that you should essentially build a fundraising board, find board members who have money, know people with money and are willing to make those connections and to give. And many people still say you should get board members who give big contributions, Mm -hmm. not just for themselves, but thousands of dollars contributions. Many nonprofits are working this way. So what happens, you know, in, we could go way back more than 300 years to talk about how money and power, right, Right. get tied together. So when we invite money onto our board, and we're looking specifically for that, we are like fire hose dumping all of our systemic inequities and biases into our board. Right. So I'm usually in favor of doing board diversity, equity, inclusion work. But Mm -hmm. I think first, you should stop like dumping the problem into your board Mm -hmm. (laughs) and then do your diversity, equity, inclusion work because we're just inviting that. And it's totally not necessary Mm -hmm. to have a successful fundraising. So what I tell my clients, because everyone's probably like wondering, like, well, how do we raise money? Have a separate group (laughs) where you put all the money and you don't also then add to all their power you don't give them decision making power or authority over how you run your organization you just put them together i like to call it the circle of friends but you can call it whatever you want and you can build a group of money people like an advisory committee something like that yeah Yeah. and you know i think that's that's funny because how you talked about that problem that you just just specifically said goes back to that harvard example right that the donors, you want to have all the people on the board because, and that was the whole discussion probably, I imagine, with the instructors and the professors saying, what do they know about education? But what do they, you know, yeah. what do they know about the needs here? They just know about what they want to influence as far as the education. But do they know, do they do their data? <laughs> right, all of those. And that still goes on today. I see a lot of boards put together with people who, like you said, it's not diverse. It's There's not equity. It's not people that actually have experienced the programs or that may have a different financial back end that they can't contribute financially, but they would be amazing on your board because they understand your population so well, right? So that's an interesting thing to say you can't really get to diversity and equity and inclusion unless you examine this thing here because you're trying to get all the high rollers, which let's make it straight, mostly white people, mostly white males on your board to get those monies to fund it because that's one of the quote unquote, best practices. So that's a really interesting tie-in. I I really, yeah, I think that's a really, how do you get rid of that systemic thing? It's like not just doing the thing by including diversity and equity, but first you have to get rid of that. Otherwise, how are you going to include diversity and equity and inclusion? Yeah, that's right. Interesting. I'm a sailor, so I like to make sailing analogies. It's like before you start making repairs on your boat, if you have a gaping hole that's just like gushing water in, you got to like steal that one up first. Yeah. <laughs> and then you can like, you know, because you're literally like sinking in it, you're going to drown if you don't <laughs> deal with that big one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's awesome. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, I'd be happy to talk, I'll talk about one more, but I yeah. want to hear from your research too, some of the stories that you've uncovered about what's not working. Um, Because I think so many of us have examples, but I'll just share one more. That's another example of describing a whole department, which is on that list of 10 is um, be responsible for all of the mission, vision, 
building awareness in the community <laughs> and advocacy for mm. what you're doing, right? That is like a marketing department, communications department, and to do advocacy is like a whole nother department too. So like, again, how are you supposed to do that as a part-time volunteer? Mm -hmm. And probably I, you know, when I first started rethinking boards, I, the first question I set out to answer was, who's the best person for this job? If we take, take each of these job descriptions, who is the best person? Who has the most skin in the game? Who has the most, which means reason to do it right? Mm -hmm. And who has the best skill set and the right amount of time and incentives and resources? And when you start to think about it that way and you go, is it this group of volunteer board members? <laughs> that doesn't sound like the best group to be in charge of all of your communications. I would want somebody who um, was skilled in communications and whose job it was to do it full time, like who's getting yeah. paid to do it. Because if, you know, like I think you and I both do some regular business consulting and it's pretty nice advice to give is if you really want somebody to be accountable for getting a job done, you pay them. Yeah. It's like one of the best ways to like align everybody's interests. Mm -hmm. And so if you really need the job done, and let me tell you, all nonprofits need communications, they need fundraising, they need marketing, mm -hmm. they have to be paying people to do these things or it's not going to happen well. Absolutely. And that also helps with consistency because a lot of boards have a certain term duration, right? So what happens to that kind of branding if somebody on your board was doing the marketing, say they're putting together the social media, and then you have a new board member and they have a totally different way of doing it. And then they're not maybe doing it as frequently. They're not communicating the same way. So yeah, there's a lot just in that one example, but I, I've definitely seen that. And I've seen successes then where boards will say, we're going to, maybe they don't have the capacity to do full-time, but they can do 1099s. They can hire in consultants just to take on specific roles. So it's more consistent. And then the budget flow is easier. They don't have to do fringe benefits and all of that. Right. Right. And they're only paying yeah. for that specific scope of work. So definitely yeah. seeing the, where it's dropped and then where it's kind of picked up. So I do like that as far as you're saying, look, this is a voluntary board. There are, you know, there's people that you're inviting. Most people already have their hands full, but they're passionate about this social movement. They're passionate about, you know, seeing this gap filled in the community. So who are those best people then to really direct and guide it? it? And, you know, so what do you think, Sarah, then on as far as we're kind of looking at what maybe we shouldn't be doing as a board? What are some things, and I know you're going to go into way more depth in the workshop on the 17th, but what are some tips then on what boards should be doing maybe? You know, what are the, the what best practices should there really be? Can you, can you kind of share some of those? Yeah, well, I think, um, you know, one, when, when people, because people always ask, like, what should I look for in a board member? Yeah. Right? And what mm -hmm. I'm always looking for is someone who will review the material, whatever the stuff is going on at the nonprofit, someone who will actually look at it mm -hmm. and is a critical thinker who is also brave enough or bold enough to ask the questions and have the conversations in the meeting. Right. So I don't want people who are so nervous or insecure that they can only have their conversation one on one in the parking lot or, uh, you know, one on one with someone else on the board, because boards legally now boards have to act as a group. 
Yeah. So it's not helpful to have the conversations on the sidelines and then stay quiet in the group meeting because that way we don't we need to be able to make decisions as a group. So um, <clears throat> it's really helpful for boards to be able to really learn how the nonprofit is running. And we're going to do a little bit of that in the training. I do a lot more of that um, in a board retreat that I run called the impact retreat, which is nice. like a one day virtual retreat where I really teach board members to understand what what are the pieces that go into running a nonprofit? Like, what is it made up? I like to talk about mission pie and money pie because nonprofits are always making mission pie and money pie. So you have to understand that business model. And then you need to understand, like, what are the key functions that every nonprofit has to have so that you can even know what to look at when you go looking at what's going on in this nonprofit. Because it comes back to, you know, at the end of the day, what is legally required is being a nonprofit is a tax status, right? It means you don't have to pay taxes on your profits. But the trade-off is nobody is allowed to own a nonprofit or a piece of a nonprofit. So you have this entity that truly has no owners Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, kind of somebody has to be legally on the hook anyway. Mm -hmm. And so from a legal perspective, what boards do need to be there is the human beings that are kind of holding this liability, but they're really, um, what's the word? We use it in fundraising. They're um, stewards. That's yeah. the word I'm looking for. Yep. They're stewards of the nonprofit, not owners. And and everybody, you know, non executive directors are also stewards, but they're paid stewards, right? right? That's what I love about executive director. They're paid professional stewards, and I always think that that's a great form of stewardship. Mm -hmm. um, but the board members do legally need to be stewards of this organization, and they can't do that if they're not well informed about how their organization is operating and what's going on. So mm -hmm. I think that that's really important and that requires consuming information mm -hmm. and that requires conversations, requires asking good questions, like what are we doing? Or really, if you have a good executive director, they should be giving you a good amount of what we're doing, not too much nitty gritty, but they should be keeping you kind of informed and you should be asking like, why is this a good idea? Just making sure you understand you know, I, don't, I really believe, I mentioned I went to the University of Chicago, and as much as there's like complex data stuff they do there, they also have this concept, it was, I think when I was there, they called it the Little Red Schoolhouse School of Writing, and basically the philosophy was, even the most complex thing, if you can't say it simply so that almost anybody can understand, it's not really that valuable as an idea, because it Ooh, won't spread. I like that. Yeah. So, you know, you should, if you're not understanding it, do push the staff, if you have staff, to explain it and re-explain it until you feel like, yes, you can say, I basically understand this. I have a decent grip on it enough to say, it makes sense to me. It makes sense why it's a good idea, right? Yeah. I really think board members, even like me or you, like, I don't know about you, but what if I'm on a board and I don't sit on boards anymore, but I used to, if mm -hmm. I'm on a board, I have the skills to really get to know what's going on and I can take in the big picture, mm -hmm. but it, even with my skill set and experience, unless I'm working in the day to day, I can give you advice on a decision and I can tell you my opinion on it. 
but I can't make the decision. I'm not, I mean, I could, but I'm not a well-qualified person. You really have to be in the day-to-day and really have a very comprehensive picture to be the person who actually owns making that decision. And I think what you'll hear on the 17th is that I really am going to pull out so clearly. Like, I know there's so many trainings that said, oh, we're going to make it clear, but this is really going to make it clear who is going to make the decision so that there is like zero, zero ambiguity ever about business decisions for nonprofits. I love that. I love that because yeah, it's even if you have a roadmap, then who's driving it, right? And that's one of the biggest frustrations that I hear from people as well, executive directors, is to say, I'm not able to engage my board, right? I'm, that relationship is just always a little murky. There's always, you know, a crossover to this, uh, the direct, the board director might be getting too involved, not involved enough, all of that. Like there's, there's always this kind of murky relationship. So I'm so glad that you're going to talk about that because that's one of the biggest frustrations that I've heard from executive directors. And it, especially even when they're saying, well, about funding, about what they should do, about hiring all of those things. And then from the, and the other thing I hear is just what you said, like, what types of board members should we be looking for? The other one I hear a lot is where do I find them? So can you kind of talk about that? Where do I find the best qualified board members, especially if we're looking at this, this better practices that you're talking about, where do I find them? Yeah, such a good question. So first of all, when you come to the training on the 17th and you start operating that way, mm-hmm. some problems around finding board members are going to go away. Nice. <laughs> and so it's going to be easier to find them just because you're doing things differently. Because mm-hmm. one, there are a couple barriers to even once you find a good board member, getting them to say, yes, they'll be on your board, right? right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I want to address those two parts because there's two parts to finding good board members. There's getting the good people to say yes, and then there's finding the for the, the good people in the first place. Yeah. And with the old yeah. setup, there are a lot of good people who would say no. Right. Um, <clears throat> because the people who truly understand what it means to be liable, they don't want to be told that it's their job and not somebody else's job to run the marketing department and the communications department and the fundraising department, right? Because they know that there's no way they're actually going to do it themselves and they don't want to be liable for it. Right. Um, So the old system is actually repelling the good board members. So, um, and this new system takes a lot less time and has a lot more reasonable expectations of board members. And so that's going to attract the good people and it's going to repel the bad people, right? Because even in this current system, like it's attracting power players, people who are on your board for political reasons, Mm -hmm. social reasons, reasons other than they want to help move your mission forward, right? And we don't want those people on our board because they have different motivations than our nonprofit has. And that's how weird, bad power politics and nasty like board communications evolve because we have a bunch of power players struggling for different reasons. So where do we find those good people assuming, excuse me, that we have a system that's going to like that they're going to want to join? Well, um, I like LinkedIn. I love that LinkedIn Um, Like literally LinkedIn users can check a box saying like, I'm interested in volunteering on a board, right? So Mm -hmm. like LinkedIn, which is now owned by Microsoft and has had a huge boom recently. There's more people than ever active on LinkedIn, like just 
did a lot of the work for you. Um, because diversity on boards has been an issue, a lot of groups that are typically underrepresented have formed groups where they literally put all the qualified people who want to be on boards together. So you just have to look for those groups. That's like so I just cool. saw one the other day, like Latinos who want to be on boards, right? Like they made it so easy for you. Oh, um, Chamber of Commerce organizations, those are all over. Great location for finding board members. Um, and another one that I love to look for, you can also use LinkedIn for this, is retired executive directors. Nice. Because they know it, yeah. they understand it, they're retired. They don't want it to be their day to day anymore. They are not about to step on your toes, but because they dedicated so much of their life to making a difference, they still want to be a part of it in some way. Right. Yeah. So I think that, you know, and you can literally like just Google our LinkedIn search for retired executive directors and you can find them and reach out to them there and they make just really great board members. I love that. Those are great recommendations. And I didn't realize they were doing that on LinkedIn. So I think that's really, really cool. And, you know, because that's it's such and I love your your aspect too on retirees, because that's what I'm going to say too. like, oh, retired people are awesome because they do. They want to have something to show up to that really has some positive change still in the world and be a part of that. And they have more time to dedicate to it. Right. So and that consistency, yeah. it's it also is relationship building for them. Um, so that's great. So I also like to tap into beneficiaries. People have been through your programs. If you run people programs, yes. right? Those types of things, because they can really bring a fresh perspective to what is really working and what really could be helpful. Right. So yeah, definitely. Those are great, great places to find board members. But I like to say, I like how you bring it back to, well, let's redefine then what are the actual best practices then and how to operate. So then it is easier to get them to say yes, right? Because, and you have to have the resources, of course, put together so they can say yes. So I know you're going to touch more on that, but so, yeah. So before we get, before we sign off today, then I want you to go ahead and say, uh, or maybe share with us some stories then on maybe something from what hasn't worked well with those original best practices and maybe what's worked now that you've seen and implemented this new system on how that's actually changing and working well. So maybe some some kind of case studies that we can relate to. Sure, well, I'll share one and I wanna hear yours too. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so um, actually, why don't you go first? Cause it sounds like you've been collecting some. So tell me what, what have you been hearing? Right, well, I think there's always a struggle on boards, like you said, to find the right types of people that really understand the nonprofit. And I think moreover, the biggest struggles that I've seen once again are between the executive director relationship with the board of directors. There's always mm -hmm. that push and pull. They really don't understand. And I think part of that too is a lot of executive directors that I know of, especially in smaller organizations, have started as a founding board member. And then they have navigated to become the full-time executive director because that is their passion, et cetera, but they cannot be on the board anymore because they're getting paid, right? So there's this disconnect of, I know what's right. I started this nonprofit. You don't really know what's going on, even though I picked you, <laughs> right? And then it's that whole that whole conversation then of like, you know, should I even tell the board? Should I just keep moving forward? Because I really know what's, what's working well. So I think that's like... Pretty much, I know it's not an actual story, but those are, I've seen 
that example play out again and again and again, right? So, and I'm wondering if that really goes back to some of those quote unquote, 10 best practices that may not be the best. And that's kind of why they've ended up in this situation. So that's really interesting to me, right? To see that. And then what I've seen as far as what does work with some of the things that you're saying uh, of better practices are when a board hands off and they have an amazing, they have amazing committees. And that's where they pull in a lot of their volunteers, a lot of those, maybe even donors, some of the sponsors sit on those committees, right? Because they really are passionate about driving the nonprofit forward and they don't need to sit on the board. They don't need to be an employee. They might do some in-kind work, but they really are passionate about the implementation, right, of that. So that's where I've seen a lot of successes is when there's active committees that aren't just the board, they might have a board representative there just to be a part of that and report back to the board, but they really have this amazing committee of volunteers, of other people who are actually contributors, and they're helping do the work without having to be a part of the power, right? So I think that's that's a really interesting, I've seen that. So yeah, some of the kind of common things that I've seen that not working out very well, the cons, and then some of those things that were, it's restructured, it works really well. Yeah. Yeah. I have seen those things a lot. In fact, to tell an extreme story, Mm -hmm. I have seen, um, the such lack of clarity, a board going in and making decisions where they really shouldn't be making decisions, but there's nothing that says, you know, they can't. And those best practices basically are saying it's your job to do everything. So anything you want to step in on do and do go for it. So I saw this happen totally unchecked. A board member did it. The board chair didn't pull them in check. It messed things up so bad. The executive director quit because it was just like undoing work that she was doing. It was good work. She was working on it mm-hmm. with legal, with a legal advisor, right? So she's doing it with a lawyer. It was an HR issue. Like she's doing it right. And this board member comes in and really almost with one action, almost tanks the organization, a total wow. sabotage. And the executive director quits and the board chair who is not like there's no like certification to be a board chair right. doesn't right. know how to remedy this situation to get that other board member in check who should have been let off the board yep. and return yep. the executive director it is hugely expensive mm-hmm. to have executive leadership turnover it's also really expensive to have development staff turnover so you know there's a really egregious example and i think this comes from and that whole bad relationship comes from lack of really real clarity on who decides what. And I know like Joan Gary teaches this. She's got a lot of great stuff, but I don't agree. She uses this model of like the twin engine jet and like the board chair and the executive director. And she kind of talks about them like co-pilots kind of doing the job together. But I don't think that works. I think, you know, one, and even on airplanes, right? This is not how airplanes work. The co-pilot and the pilot are not making joint decisions. No. (laughs) The pilot pilot. is deciding. (laughs) Yeah. And then if the pilot is no longer the pilot, the co-pilot becomes the pilot, (laughs) right? Like it is really clear cut. And like, you know, plane accidents have gone down by the use of really clear cut checklists. Like we have to make this super clear and everybody in the training is going to get a really clear cut checklist too. 
Um, so I've seen things like that happen again and again. Um, and it really, you know, I'd love to say that there are all these stories of boards helping organizations. And sometimes, you know, if there's a lot of money coming in from a board, that's kind of helpful. But we already talked about it's also really problematic. And you can have that money coming in without all the problems. Mm-hmm. Um, but more and more, what I see is the boards, if unless they're, you know, when they're great, it's a bit of a help. Yeah. But so often they become bad. And um, and it just brings progress for the nonprofit to a screeching halt. I survey incoming executive directors who are my clients and I ask them what percentage of your time in your job goes to managing your board's expectations. Mm-hmm. And you want to take a guess at what percentage they say? Mm, what is it? 20%. Yeah, that's... You think that's like, that's not a good use of the no. executive director's yeah. time. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. It's not at all. I mean, that's just like, and that's, that's kind of the big thing that I've seen, right? That murky relationship that, yep, lots of time, lots of stress, lots of back and forth. And it's like, oh, just let me do my job. <laughs> and, you know, we talked about a case study. I won't go into the details because you can actually find this case study on my website. I'll give you the link so we can put it in the show notes. But it's about, so one of the things, big reveal here, you're going to go, oh my God, when you hear this in the training, I'm going to tell you, and you have to come to the training to understand why this makes sense, mm-hmm. that your board should not be approving your budget. Oh, right, which probably everybody has been told, right? This is huge. That is huge. Yeah. <laughs> there I is a that. case study that I'll tell you about Student Television Network who implemented this. And I had the privilege of being able to work with them the prior year when they did it the traditional way where the board approved the budget. And the next year where they did it the new way where the board did not approve the budget. Mm-hmm. And guess what happened? What? Everybody took more accountability. Everybody had more joy. Everybody felt more confident in how the money was being spent. And the conversations the executive director was having around their budget, working with me in the first year, the old way, she's asking me questions like, I'm never going to be able to get my board to approve this number. What can I do instead that might get them to approve it, right? That might, like she's, and then this year, the next year where she's, doesn't have to get board approval. Mm-hmm. She's asking questions like, how can I spend this money to make the biggest impact for my organization? What's the right. best way to spend this money, right? Those are the questions we want everybody asking about money in our organizations is what's the best way to spend it to get more impact or more money or ideally both at the same time, right? How can we leverage our money and turn it into lots more money and lots more helping people? And mm-hmm. that is what happened. And even her board who in the past had been so in the weeds about we don't need to spend $2,000 on this yeah. or a couple hundred dollars on that all of a sudden was saying, how is this money going to impact our strategic goals? And all the answers were there because the whole budget, the whole financial plan was designed to impact the strategic goals. And all of a sudden, everything's exactly on the same page. And I think it's because we relieved the board, we made the focus all on the impact. Right. And we 
the board of this sense, you know, when you have to be responsible for something that you don't really have control over, that doesn't feel good. I was recently told my, my child has a lot of anxiety and he needs some dental work and he's going to have to go under anesthesia to get the dental work done because he's just too anxious to have it done another right. way. In that moment where as the parent, I had to, to decide to do this, mm -hmm. it was an awful decision to have to make. It felt terrible because I'm not a doctor. Right. I'm not really, I don't really know about kids and anesthesia and dentistry. And I had to make this decision that didn't feel good yeah. because that, that's not my expertise, right? Mm -hmm. I don't have the working knowledge. I just have the one kid and my own life of dental experience, right? Like, so I think that that is the kind of when we ask our boards to make decisions like that. They don't really have yeah, the right information. <laughs> they don't know. And it doesn't, it makes them very anxious. And what do we do when we get anxious? We freeze up and we just right. say, no, we don't want to do anything. We don't want to spend any money. <laughs> we don't know. And so if you take that pressure off, which doesn't need to be there in the first place, all of a sudden they're like, oh, let me ask an interesting question, right? And I love that. I love that. Yeah. I mean, because that's redirecting the focus, right? So that's, such a good way to look at it and to really then make the board help helpful, more creative, instead of thinking about how can I critique this? It's like, no, how can I, how can I advance this? So yeah. those are great tips. I can't wait to dive into more. Like I'm super excited about your training because I haven't actually been to this training. So I'm really excited as you're creating it, putting it together. I know you already have it. You've had it out there. It's going to be amazing. Um, but it's really good for, uh, for me to hear about these different ways as well, because they're so interesting and they're very data-driven as far as looking at what can actually work and why do we have to follow the same old when it's clearly not working? Why is, who is even calling that a best practice? Like who's endorsing that, right? You know what I mean? It's just kind of like goes on and on and on. It's just kind of out there. So um, I absolutely love this. I can't wait. So once again, you guys are going to definitely have to join this. If you're loving what you're hearing today and you want more of that clarity, that framework, that really saying, okay, let's pull back and look at this in a totally different paradigm and see how we can actually make this work instead of just continuing frustrating situations, right? That aren't sustainable. Uh, definitely join us on the 17th at 2 p.m. We can have all the links in the show notes. And then um, Sarah, any last words before we close out today? Wow. Just that, you know, I would love to see everybody there. And what I'm going to tell you there, which I'll tell you now is as much as I love giving advice and training, I really like results. And that can't happen if you don't take action. So what I want to tell like everybody listening is the most important thing, even if you just have one little nugget, I'd rather you just take one little thing and act on it then learn a bunch of things and not do anything. So yes. just, I want everybody to take some kind of action. I love that. I'm so big in that too. I'm like, do it, do it now. <laughs> Here's a workbook. All my trainings come with workbooks. And I'm like, I want you to write it down because it helps your brain actually then implement. So I love that. So definitely um, thank you again, Sarah, for coming on. Sarah Livieri from Pivot Ground. And where can people find you? Pivotground.com is the best place. You can also social media stalk me, but pivotground.com is the easiest. Awesome. Well, thank you again for coming back on the show. And I'm sure we're going to have you on again as you're going through new data and research and you can share with us some new tips as well. So thanks again, Sarah. We'll see you soon. Bye. Bye. I hope you enjoyed this podcast episode today with Sarah Olivieri of Pivot Ground. 
I really love the research that she's done and how she's been able to position, you know, let's go ahead and look at, is this really working? Because it doesn't feel like it is. And <laughs> she really demonstrated that maybe the best practices aren't necessarily the best practices for board directors. But then she also doesn't leave us hanging there. She gives us some examples of what can really lead the way. So if you want more out of this and you really are resonating with what Sarah's talking about today and are like, oh my gosh, I want a more efficient board and I really want to move forward, do join us on January 17th at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard as Sarah will have a live webinar, You Need a Better Performing Board, How High-Performing Nonprofits Can Organize Their Boards to Maximize Impact with Five Simple Steps. It is an all-new online board training and you are going to absolutely love it. Once again, jump over to grantwritingandfunding.com forward slash 253 to sign up for this free webinar with Sarah Olivieri and myself. I'll be there too. It's going to be a lot of fun. I'm really excited about it because I love this conversation with Sarah and I love that she's done the work, the grind of the research, and she's also done the work of sampling this out, doing case studies, putting it together, and really saying what can work. So I love this. I'm going to be there. I'm super excited. And as always, if you love the grant writing and funding podcast show, please do leave us a review on your podcast player as it does help other people find the grant writing and funding podcast. All right. We'll see you next week on another episode of grant writing and funding.